thankful again to everyone who's here. Hope that this is a useful time for us today. And as Evan referred to, and he went through uh, some of the what we call qualifications for the elders, the eldership um, in Titus chapter 1. I thought it might be a good opportunity for us to discuss those things uh, just briefly. We're going to be moving fairly quickly, uh, but so we won't be able to get into maybe the nitty-gritty of a lot of these things, but I just want to generally talk about the work of the elders. And since uh, Evan read out of Titus, I'd like for us to read out of 1 Timothy 3, and we'll start there in verse 1. He says, This is a faithful saying, If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. What we really are dealing with when we talk about elders is the idea of leadership. And when I talk about the eldership, the more I think about it, I really like, we use this term qualifications. I think that's a good term. Nothing wrong with using that. But I really like this term qualities because it infers the fact that these men already have these qualities within themselves. It's not that you qualify to enter into the eldership necessarily. It's that you have these qualities. And it proves something about who, uh, who you are and who God wants you to be. And uh, all those things we can hopefully appreciate together this morning. Um, let's, let's recall that God has always wanted elders or shepherds among his people. He had patriarchs before and after the flood. Uh, we see the, the idea of patriarchs being put together. And in Genesis 2 and verse 18, we have that idea that the Lord uh, made a helper comparable to him. The fact that a helper is made for him, he was to be patriarch over the family. That's what Adam was. And a uh, similar situation, 1 Timothy two twelve through 13, where we see... Uh, that Adam was formed first and then Eve, that, that Eve was to be in submission to Adam in that sense. And then, of course, we have shepherds or rulers of the flock of Israel. Uh, famously, uh, Moses' father-in-law, uh, Jethro, uh, encouraged Moses to delegate uh, these leaders, these rulers over Israel, so that Israel, the whole nation, wasn't just going directly to Moses for all of these minor concerns. And we see that in places like Exodus 18:21, Deuteronomy 1, 12 through 17, and same book, 17, chapter 17, verses 14 through 17. And so we have elders as well in the New Testament church. Uh, Evan read from 1 Peter 5 as well, so we won't go there. But I, just, I say this to make the point that this is not an uncommon thing. This is not just some new thing that God cooked up for uh, the new covenant. It's different in some cases, I think. Uh, patriarchs were singular leaders of their families. Uh, the shepherds and rulers over the whole flock of Israel would be a, a total thing. 
whereas in elders we have a much more localized idea. So let's talk about these terms. You'll notice on your handouts we've got the, the specific terms that we have. First of all, the term uh, elder or presbyter. The Greek is presbyteros, and uh, that really, the, the word itself, the Greek word, uh, emphasizes really age, experience, or wisdom. And uh, it's used in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 14, since we're in that same uh, opening, where uh, he tells Timothy, don't neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on the hands of the eldership. The idea of the eldership being there. Uh, age, experience, or wisdom. There is a non-technical and a technical use of this word. And I think we need to recognize this. Just being someone who's older does not mean that you're automatically an elder. There's a difference. Now, the same word is being used. Let's, let's notice this in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Is that the same as the elders? Look farther in verses 19 and 20 of the same chapter. Do not receive an accusation against an elder, except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. So see, I would suggest in verse 19, we've got the situation where this is, uh, you might say, the technical use of the term, that it's being used to designate this special person, this person who fulfills these these qualifications, these qualities. Whereas in verse 1, you have simply an older person. Don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers. That's a general term. And in verse 2, that same word is being used to describe uh, the women. So uh, that, 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 what we have there in terms of the elder, that, that shows the age, the experience, the wisdom. There's a different term that's used in Acts 20. And uh, in Philippians 1 and verse 1, is that term bishop or overseer, episkopos. And if you think about where we hear a word like that, the Episcopal Church kind of comes to mind, that denomination. Uh, the, The emphasis on rule and authority is on that idea of bishop or overseer. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 25, the same term is applied to Jesus. And so as we see that, that, you know, the elder focus, the elder presbyter indicates the work of guidance by reason of maturity and experience. The, the term bishop or overseer indicates the work of superintending, the fact that he has authority. He oversees the work locally. And then thirdly, the idea of a pastor or shepherd. Poimen is the Greek, and we see that in Ephesians 4.11, uh, that he appointed some to be pastors. Again, this emphasizes care, direction, leadership, and authority. This almost really seems to be an all-encompassing idea. The authority aspect, the direction, the care, and the leadership all kind of come together in that sense. Again, the same term is applied to Jesus where he says, You have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So it's that idea of that overarching uh, uh, concept that this is a leader. Uh, this term, pastor or shepherd, indicates the work of leading and tending a flock. And so that, that work is very important. We're going to get to that in just a second. But note how these terms are interchangeable. They're all 
they're three separate terms, Greek terms, that all mean the same thing. And we don't have the time to go into these passages, but you note, look in Acts 20, the way that these terms are used in verses 17 28, and also in 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. The idea that these three words all are talking about different aspects of the same office. We need to know that coming out the gate while we look at this together. All right, any comments or questions about that? All right. Further in our thoughts, God intends his elders to work. And this is a work that's not to be, uh, uh, not an honor to be coveted, but it's a work to be desired. As we've already read in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1. The idea that elders should be honored for their work's sake, of course, but they must not desire it for honor's sake. And again, we've got that, that reference in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13. The idea that you honor these elders for the sake of their work. And God intends for them to work. This is a divine office. This is not a political office. Uh, Paul says in, in, in Acts 20 and verse 8 that these elders in Ephesus have been made elders by who? By the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit made them elders. So this isn't a local congregation putting in a vote and saying, well, the majority of the members want these people. Uh, how does the Holy Spirit make these elders? Well, it's the same way that he makes Christians. The Holy Spirit inspired the word which gives us the terms and the conditions of being an elder, and so we follow those instructions. When a church selects people uh, to be an elder, they must fit the terms laid down by inspired men, not made by a political process. Let's also understand that uh, you know, sometimes men will, will run for office, uh, you know, backslapping at all. We sometimes look at them in a fleshly way. We sometimes appoint elders in fleshly ways where we're focusing more on those aspects of wealth, of family, of uh, business pedigree, their personality. All of those things really need to take a step back. Those are not the main focuses when we're looking at elders. It's a local office. It's not a diocese. What I mean by that, this is not a group that will shepherd and overlook all the churches in a certain area. And again, we don't have time to go to these passages, but we know and see in the New Testament that elders were only to be over local churches in the New Testament. We see that in Acts 14.23, Acts 20.17, and in 1 Peter 5.2. The elders of the local churches. That's exactly what we see is that, that each church had their own group of elders. And it's an administrative office. It's not a legislative office. They don't make laws. They don't make rules. And in fact, when they do that, they're violating these things. They simply carry out Christ's law. They don't, as uh, Evan mentioned, they don't rule as lords, but they rule as leaders in the same way that a good husband and father rules his family. Any questions, comments? I know we're moving very quickly. couple of passages there in terms of the fact that it's an administrative office. Uh, some quick warnings against those who abuse the eldership. God commands Christians to honor their shepherds. So if I find myself in a situation where I am in a congregation that is headed by elders, I'm to listen to them. I'm to support them. 
Hebrews 13, 17, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. Why? For they watch out with your, uh, for your souls. 1 Peter 5 and verse 5, You younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. On the same basis, God warns in another direction as well. That God warns in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, I believe, against shepherds who do not shepherd. I want us to look at Jeremiah. Uh, you might look at that, term, uh, that, that passage in Isaiah, but we don't quite have time to look over it. But uh, in Jeremiah 23, this is a really useful passage because if we combine together and we think about the whole of what God wants uh, in terms of leadership among us, we have to take into the fact that there indeed were shepherds under the old covenant. And so in Jeremiah 23 and verse 1, look at what's going on here. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doing, says the Lord. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking. It's interesting that we see this because by the time we see Jesus come into the picture, what is he looking when he's looking at the people in compassion? He's looking at the people in compassion because they're like sheep that have no shepherd. And so God wants us to have the right kind of shepherds. And in fact, if we have shepherds that are not leading, that are not working, uh, let, let's suggest, let's understand that even if they fulfill all the qualities that we see on the page in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1, if they are not doing their job, by basic rights, they're not qualified for the job. I can be qualified for a job, but if I'm not actually doing that job, should I be surprised when the boss fires me? You know. Think about this together as we continue to, to, to con, uh, consider the work of the elders. Any comments or questions on that at all? Like anything we've been handed down, it can be, uh, we've been handed by God, it can certainly be abused. But as, uh, as we have on your handout, here are some basic qualities, I would say, concerning elders. Uh, and, and let me say this as well, as we, as we begin to look at this aspect of it. The task of growing elders is really a great, great task. And if we're not actively working so that this congregation can have qualified elders, let me suggest that we're not doing God's will. And what I mean by that is, I'm not saying we have to have meetings all the time to try to see who, who's qualified or not, you know. I'm simply saying that we have to be, have on our minds right now that the young men that we have growing up, we need to train them to be elders. And, and, and I want to encourage us in this sense because this is not an optional thing. If a man decides just on his own basis, no, I don't want to be an elder. man told me that one time. I, I, I lead everybody at work, you know. I've got a job where everybody's looking to me for leadership. I don't want to be an elder. I'm sorry. I, I, I don't see how that man can face God in judgment with a clear conscience. 
Now, I'm not talking about men who uh, gets to a point where maybe you realize that, well, there's, there's really no way that I could be an elder. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about men who have that possibility, who have that opportunity, but refuse it. Which of us could say that, that here God is giving us an opportunity to work along with Christians in a local congregation? Let's say someone says, you know what, I don't want that. Do you think God's going to look upon them favorably? When we consider these qualities and think about it, we need to be thinking about this in terms of you know, as young as as young as as, as Jericho, as young as uh, as Stanton, and we're working on these young men to try to train them up and help them understand that this work is hard, but it is a work that is desirable. It's something that God calls upon us to fulfill in our lives. And and let me let me say this too: when we look at the qualifications of elders, the qualities of elders. There really is, you know, just a, a, a very minor aspects of this are things that, uh, that not every Christian is necessarily called upon to be or do. The clear majority of it is it, for all of us, right? So this is the benefit of looking at it together. Um, now, as we go over these qualities, some, some may disagree with the way that I look at these things. I want to try to be fair with the way that I present them. It's going to be a quick overview. It's not a detailed study. Uh, we can certainly make a detailed study of it. Um, but uh, that, that said, we do want to remember a few basic things. When we're looking at the eldership, we have to hold to what the Word says. We don't need to uh, add to it. We don't need to take away from it. We need to be careful that that's what we're doing. And also, we're not looking for supermen to fulfill these things. We're not looking for perfect people. We're looking for godly men who fit these qualities. So uh, I think the basic aspects here, we're looking at the idea of reputation, character, self-control, a spiritual view of possessions, being a qualified teacher, and a man who's leading a godly family. Those are just general groupings, I would say of these qualities. It's helped me a lot to really look at this and a lot of this is based on a study that I was in with Wes Brown and some other fellows while I was over at Pinson. And uh, so let's kind of go into this just briefly. Um, if you have any questions just feel free to, to jump in at any time. Um, the idea of being blameless or above reproach some, some translations might say. That's really the idea. And this occurs in Titus and in Timothy. Uh, the idea of being above reproach or blameless it really means uh, he's unable to have a charge brought against him. It doesn't mean he's sinless. It just means he's blameless. It's not a man who openly practices sin. And so that's just something to think of there. And of good report, as Timothy talks about. Someone who is of good report. This is... Uh, we have to understand this goes even beyond, I think, the local membership. If a certain person is thought of in the, in the public's eye as a rascal, someone who's not honorable, um, it probably would not be a good idea to put him in as an elder. Uh, he has to be of good report just in a general way. Now, if he has a reputation that's undeserved, that's something that's, you know, he's been suffering for the cause of Christ and, and the world thinks of him in a certain way, that's not what I'm talking about. 
but uh, you know, I, I think the idea of being in in good reputation is uh, good report is someone who's thought well of in the community. It's someone who is seen as someone who's who's good and, and useful. So reputation, I think, goes into it. And this doesn't mean again. This doesn't mean we go with the way the world thinks of things, but uh, that idea of being good report, that idea of being blameless. There's a lot of situations we could talk about there. Uh, the idea of character, of course, is very important. Uh, he's referred to in Titus as being holy and just in First Timothy, talking about patience. Uh, th- this man, as we see in terms of being just, he's, he's impartial. He doesn't favor uh, uh, some members over others. He does his best to treat everyone equally. Uh, back to the idea of being holy, he is uh, set apart from sin. And really, again, this doesn't mean he's sinless, only that he's in the right standing with God, someone who is separated for these things. The idea of being patient, this man is calm and considerate. He knows that sometimes God's work progresses more slowly than other times. He's able to wait on the Lord. Good behavior. This is a man who's orderly in his life. He's dignified, he's courteous, and he's modest. Titus uses the term lover of good. This man loves to see good being done and has a particular appreciation for those who seek to practice good. He's not self-willed. Essentially, uh, you know, Evan covered this very well, I think, the idea that he, he just, he's not just concerned about what he wants. He's not someone who is unyielding in judgment or unconcerned by others. So this is the kind of character of the man that we're looking for, the person we're trying to train up and, and, and mold in the, the shape of an elder. The self-control is so important. There's so much in here in terms of self-control that goes into this. The idea of being temperate in Titus. This is a man who has developed his self-control. Uh, his passions, his uh, speech, his temper have all been honed to the point that he can control himself even in tense and emotional situations. That's a very important quality. As we all know, that, that there, there are going to be tense times as we work together in a congregation. There will be times where things are not as easy as we might want them to be. So it's very important for there to be a balanced, even tone in the room, especially uh, in an eldership. That, that is absolutely needed. The concept of being vigilant. Paul warned the Ephesian elders to be vigilant in Acts 20, 28-31. So this is a man who is constantly watchful for dangers that threaten the flock that he shepherds. He's going to be on the lookout for these things. This is why it's very important by the way, for elders to be on Facebook. and to, If their members are on social media, they need to have an eye on that to see what's going on and to watch out for those of the flock. This man is a sober man. Uh, and really, we're not necessarily talking about alcohol here. But he's sober-minded. He's serious about these things. He has an even temper to help him see the truth of the situation and his rational mindset allows him to look at God's word for these solutions. So he's sober. He's not soon angry. He's able to control his temper. And note, it's not just to keep from being angry, but being able to be angry at the right time and for the right reason. That, those are important aspects for us to know. Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. 
He's not a brawler. And this is very similar to the idea of not being a striker or a bruiser, as, uh, as Evan talked about. But this is a man who is going to avoid fighting on a personal basis. He's not going to seek a confrontation, but he's going to seek to defuse situations before they turn contentious. And there is something to be said about there. Um, how many congregations have had situations that come up that maybe the elders deal with before they become such an issue that everyone has to be involved? That's really the need that we have sometimes for, for elders. The idea of being a striker, a bruiser, ready for a blow, a pugnacious, contentious, quarrelsome person. Um, I've heard, and I haven't seen this, but I've heard before that there have been business meetings that uh, wind up with a couple of men going outside to settle some dispute or some aspect. You know, we, we shouldn't think that such a thing could never happen among brethren. But this man, if he's not a striker, is going to avoid physical altercations to handle disagreements. We don't need any Popeyes or Bluto's in the, in the eldership. You know, not somebody who's just ready to punch their way through. And uh, again, it may seem kind of odd, but I, I've certainly have heard of situations like that before. Uh, not given to wine. This is so important. This is a man who does not give himself over to alcohol. Of course, some could claim that he can drink but not get drunk. But of course, in I think in Proverbs 23, if we understand what wine was in the Bible and we look at what's encouraged concerning wine and concerning strong drink, the wine in the Bible was very low alcohol content. Um, it was just enough to purify the drink for use. And so the modern application, I think, would be that, that we have a man who abstains together, altogether, from alcohol and from recreational drink. All right. Uh, as we consider his spiritual view of possessions, he's not greedy, greedy of filthy lucre, not greedy of base gain, in some translations might say. This is a man who is not going to allow himself to prosper by doing something wrong. He works in a place where maybe uh, some numbers are fudged on the records and uh, we just sort of assume and say, well, that's okay, everybody does it. Well, it's a question of right and wrong. This is not a man who allows for those things to go on. Um, it, it, it's something where you won't lie to further your business in, so on and so forth. Um, so this is not a man who does this. This is also a man who's not covetous. Uh, Revised Standard says, free from the love of money. And of course, 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The idea of being covetous, this is a man who does not make money his primary concern in life. And unfortunately, many men will mask this desire, this covetousness for the reason that they have to, quote, provide for their family. And often they will provide them with such material wealth that they die spiritually. So this is a man who doesn't covet after that, who doesn't seek after those things, but seeks after uh, spiritual benefits, spiritual riches. And he's given to hospitality. This is mentioned in both passages. Uh, literally, the Greek term means loving strangers. And I, I think that's really interesting. First Peter 4, 9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. This is not just about whether he has... Uh, people to his home, but generally it's the idea that this man has a home that's open to everyone. 
and he's happy to receive and help people whatever the need is and to whomever needs it. He doesn't regard his home as a sanctuary that no one else can enter, but he knows that he's been given this from God, and so he needs to share it. This isn't from a sense of duty, but because he genuinely loves to be hospitable. He loves to do this and loves to help in that way. And again, most of this stuff, I think we have to recognize, this is not just for elders. This is for all of us as well. An elder needs to be a qualified teacher. And there was a time when I might have said that every Christian has to be a qualified teacher. And there might be ways that you can uh, show that, but over time I've really thought about it from the standpoint that, you know, Paul, especially with Timothy and with Titus, he sets them apart in his language and says, you know, you're, you're to be teaching. You're to be the one who's teaching these. And it's this idea of being able to teach that is very, very important. And we'll look at that in just a second. But first of all, he's not a novice. And what this means is he's newly planted, a new convert or a neophyte. Uh, one who We're talking about basically one who's recently become a Christian. And so specifically, I think this phrase itself shows us that we're not just dealing with a question of age. It doesn't matter what age someone becomes a Christian. It's a matter of a time thing. Are they a novice? Are, are, this is a man who really has been seasoned. He's withstood the rigors of not only becoming a Christian, but living the life of a Christian. What happens if we have novices as elders? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy that pride can rear its head in that particular case. So we avoid those who uh, have not been a Christian very long because they're still babes. They still have to grow. But apt to teach literally means skilled in teaching, as we read in 1 Timothy 3. Skilled in teaching. This is a man who has been teaching Bible classes, who maybe has been leading personal studies, who generally is doing his best to teach others the gospel. And uh, I think we need to consider this too. Some people say, well, well, sometimes you know, maybe this fellow just teaches by example. Even if he doesn't teach publicly, maybe he just teaches by example. Well, can I become skilled at teaching by example? I'm not sure about that. Maybe I can. But further, does teaching by example make it known to everyone undoubtedly that a person is skilled in teaching? If I have this example of this brother out there in the world, how can I know here that he's skilled in teaching? Just some things to think about there. This needs to be someone who is able to teach, not just able, but is skilled in teaching and is able to show others the true word of God. And this really falls along with what we see in Titus, holding fast the faithful word. To hold firmly to or to cleave to. That's really what we're talking about. This is a man who will not abandon the truth when pressure or difficulty arises. He'll hold true to God's word. He'll enforce it when necessary and make it plain when evil arises. And of course, this is a necessity because as Evan read on and talked about, elders must monitor and evaluate uh, for example, preachers and teachers within the congregation and ensure that false doctrine is not taught. That, that is an absolute necessity to happen there. And so in that same sense, they're holding fast that faithful word. They're holding on to that so that they can teach and they can show the truth to others. Further, the idea of exhorting others. To call to one side or to call to one's aid 
to address or speak to or call upon, uh, which may be done in the way of exhortation, entreaty, comfort, instruction. This is a man who is able and ready to exhort those who are in error from the word, whether knowingly or ignorantly. A man who is unable to correct others and remains silent in the face of false doctrine does not fit this quality. He is able to exhort and convince the gainsayer. This means to convict, confute, or refute, to speak against. Uh, the New King James convict those who contradict. This idea that you, this, is, uh, this man is going to be able to uh, use sound doctrine to convict those who are speaking against that same sound doctrine. He's going to use good teaching for it. And he's going to be able to rebuke or refute those who talk back against the truth of God. Now I want to make this note as we finish this section. With all these teaching qualities, we have to remember that while there is no issue with the elders of a local congregation, including a supported evangelist, a supported preacher in these efforts, it's clear to me, maybe I'm wrong, but it's clear to me that these men, based on these passages, must be able to handle these situations even without an evangelist present. I just wanted to say that and make that clear, that, that there's no preacher being involved here, right? That doesn't mean he can't be involved, but based on just the text itself, they need to be able to do this on their own. just wanted to offer that. Think about that as we keep going. So he's a qualified teacher. And finally, of course, he's a man leading a godly family. He is a husband of one wife. The basic idea here is to be a one-wife man or a one-woman man. He is not a bachelor or a polygamist, right? And... In the same sense, his wife, I believe, I'm convicted of the thought that his wife must be also faithful to God. Why do I say this? In First First uh, Timothy three and verse eleven, in qualifications for deacons, it says there likewise their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. <laughs> the idea of, of them being reverent and faithful carries with it this idea that this is not a man whose wife has never become a Christian. And in fact, his wife is to be faithful to God in this sense. And of course, we have controversy over the idea and the question, can a man who has divorced his wife for the reason of sexual immorality and gone on and married another woman, can that person be considered to be an elder? Um, I would say yes, because he has one wife. But I know there are many that hold the idea that uh, that idea with itself has a lot of questions, right? Uh, how responsible was he in the situation? All these other things that we could think about. And so, of course, the most uh, simple answer would be that uh, this is a man who has only been married once. And, uh, and because of that, he is a one-woman man. But, of course, we, we have a distinction there. I, I think when we're talking about the bond, if this man is bound to this one woman, that is his wife. That is his one wife. That's just my two cents on it. may not be worth anything. But uh, I, I would encourage, uh, uh, you know, if you have any questions or any thoughts about that, I certainly encourage that. that uh, love to have a conversation about it.
Um, the quality of being blameless and of good report, of course, is absolutely essential to properly understand this as well. The husband of one wife. Further, he has what I would say faithful children. Greek word, I guess you would pronounce it technon. Uh, I think we see this plainly in both passages. Now, the First Timothy 3 passage really seems to focus more on the idea that this man, uh, his children are in submission with all reverence. And there are some who might say that maybe it doesn't matter who they're in submission to, or maybe it doesn't matter who they're faithful to. But I would beg the question in these passages, who are they faithful to? I don't know that there's anything else you could say, but that they're believing, they're faithful, they're in submission, they're trusting toward God. We have many brethren who hold to the idea that they're believing or trusting to their father. And so the idea of an elder having children who are Christians or not isn't even a question in their minds anymore. But I, I like the Revised Standard Version that renders it his children are believers. Uh, 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 and the ESV says a similar thing. ASV says having children that believe. Again, some people fight against this thought. And to me, my question is, since we can't establish from the text how many of these children are faithful, or how many should be faithful, or how many shouldn't be faithful, I've talked to one, of the, one person that he, he basically would allow that maybe one of the children could be unfaithful to God, but you know, he would want the majority to be faithful to God. And how can we make that distinction? How can we say this number versus that number? I would say since we can't establish from the text how many are faithful, we have to assume that all of this man's children are to be faithful. When we consider the qualification in 1 Timothy and in Titus, it paints the picture of, an, of all their children being faithful to God. Now again, I want to say this. If you're going to say that the children do not have to be faithful to God in terms of being Christians, then you can allow for the idea that the wife is not a Christian. Because the same term is being used in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 11. Their wives must be uh, reverent, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in all things. That word faithful is the same word being used in Titus 1 concerning children. And so if the children can be unfaithful to God then the wife can be unfaithful to God. That's just what I would, I would suggest here. Uh, let me say, too, as we continue... Well, well, let me get to that in just a second, actually. Ruling well over his home means to preside or rule or to maintain. And uh, so he's holding on to his family. He's ruling his house in a good way. Now, let me say this, too. He's proven his ability to rule. His house, and this manifests in leading his family to godliness. We can't say that someone rules his house well just because their children follow everything he says and they they seem nice and everything like that. The question is, has he ruled his house well in terms of the way that God wants him to rule his house? And if this is a man who has never encouraged his children to be Christians or never had a conversation with them concerning the Bible, never taught them in that way. I'm not sure really that he has ruled his house well. And having his children in subjection. 
Let me suggest too, when we talk about the question, are, there, are we talking about plural children or are we talking about a single child? Is it possible for a person, for a man to be an elder when he's only had one child? Uh, when you look at the word study of that term children, the same term, I, I know it's in the plural form, and maybe we would say, well, that just sort of settles it. I would suggest one quick thing to you here, just something to think about. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 11, when Jesus is talking about, uh, uh, he says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? There's a number of passages where we see the term children being used in this way. Now, would Jesus in this situation only be talking to families that have more than one child? I would say no. It would include families that would have only one child. And so I would suggest that if we look at this in, ter in terms of the word study, there may be something there. I'm not saying anything absolutely. I'm not trying to say that, that a man can only have one child and then you know, he's, he has the qualities of an elder. But uh, just wanted to offer that to think about. But his children must indeed be in subjection, in obedience, and I think, again, specifically in subjection to God. And this is not limited to the children's time within the home. House denotes family. We're not talking about uh, uh, just their time there. We're talking about as long as they're family. And this is all of our life. This is a man whose children are in subjection not only to him but to God. He doesn't let them live with a flippant attitude about faithfulness in terms of who they are and who God is. There's a lot of things. We've briefly gone through all these things. We're even a little bit over time, you might say. But uh, I would encourage you to take a look further at that handout. And if you have any questions about it, please let me know. But uh, generally, these are the qualities of elders. We need leadership in the church. But uh, I read a... a article by Doy Moyer recently, he made a really great point from the standpoint that we need leadership in the local church, but it could be argued that even more so, we need servantship within the local church. The idea that, that we need members, we need people who are willing to submit to each other, to love each other, to do good for each other in these ways. And maybe in that way, we can become closer to what God wants us to be and so our children see that example and they're brought up in that way. Um, I'll, also, I'll note again um, a brother that I know of up in the Russellville area. He's been preaching at a, at a congregation there for a long time. And they've had for, I think he said about 10 or so years, they've had uh, what he calls an elder, elder class. And what they're doing is they, once you get engaged, you get invited to that class. And they're encouraging these couples in this way to, to become elders. And over time, that's really helped them to kind of get together in that way, to be together in those ways and to think about uh, this great, great work that God has, has pushed us to, that, that has said, this is the way that we're going to be led in our local congregations. Again, I'm not saying that if we don't have elders that we're somehow not in keeping with the Word, but we're just not quite there yet. Right? And we need to work to be there.